Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. And we are back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. And I'm Louis Fertel, and we are simply drowning in yeehaws. You won't believe the varieties we're getting. First of all, we had the Casey Musgraves yeehaw, which is the classic one. And then <laughs> we were trying to enjoy the Super Bowl, and Knowles Carter got up and said, I have a white hat, and I would like to celebrate that. And that means we're getting, I guess, a country era from Beyonce, which... It was about time, and I, I, everybody guessed it, but we're getting it. Well, first of all, I'm going to say I was not enjoying the Super Bowl. I wasn't attempting to. It was a it was a boring game until I feel like the last two quarters. Right. No, in which case. And then it wouldn't stop being entertaining, which was so weird. Yeah. Um, Beyonce put some pep into everyone's step. Maybe so. Um, but when it comes to the yeehaw of it all, I do want to say about Beyonce and alleged transition into country music. What I've loved about this is that one, Beyonce's always been country. You know, she's she's Texas. You know, she's third ward trill, as it were, if you know what those words mean. Oh, I'm Louis. always saying them. Yes, uh, <laughs> she's always had that the Creole influence. She's always used her twang. That Texas Bama, yes, yeah. You know, there's always been that, like, that Texas influence. She's always leaned heavily on that. I think that we've seen that influence definitely in some of her other work before. But what is so exciting about this is, like, um, she's giving you the full country fantasy. She's giving you the full what America sees country as, what the gatekeepers of country see as country, which is blonde wig and so blonde it's platinum okay right. mm-hmm. and white hat and i'm not talking about olivia pope okay <laughs> she is standing in the sun but the sun is in texas correct not vermont also getting words like hoedown which like so we're getting a throwback rollicking country music as mm. opposed to you know this like whiskey on the back of a pickup truck country music that i feel like is dominating everything right now so it's, it's rootin' tootin', if you will. You know, actually, <laughs> listening to Texas Hold'em, one of the two new singles she dropped, I, I mean, this is sort of an obvious um, thought that came to mind because they've worked together before, but I could picture Natalie Maine singing it because I feel like mm. what Beyonce is bringing to country music is what Natalie Maine does, which is both vulnerability and a sense of defiance, which you don't always get with country music. A lot of people are very content to just give you 
I'm a country artist. I belong in country. Here's what it sounds like. But you're getting something like there's something fierce about engaging your country roots here. Mm, she's pissing off white people. Right. Precisely. By the yeah, way, just like we, Natalie. Can we just can we revisit when they fucking sang? First of all, Daddy Lessons at that Country Music Awards, which was fabulous. Mm-hmm. They all looked amazing. Actually, Beyonce. To say Beyonce looked amazing is the understatement of the century at that award show. But then <laughs> they broke into a few bars of Long Long Time Gone, that song that basically makes fun of everybody in country music and says, you know, they've got Junior, but they don't have Hank. And so, like, to their faces, mm-hmm. an unusually um, strident moment for Beyonce and a typically strident moment for Natalie Maines and the girls. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, we know that the girls were mad about that by the girls i mean the boys uh i mean the toby keith's r.i.p uh, my brother um was those kind of people were upset about the chicks being on that stage because they had excommunicated the chicks right you know because the chicks were like george bush we don't like you um and we'll get it. We'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, I keep it. That's a little tease for your of my keep. Oh, it. I hope it's Toby Keith centric. I hope. I hope this <laughs> keep it is courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Uh, it is political centric, uh, but it is not about uh, Mr. Keith. Oh, you damn know? it! Um, I don't know that much about him, to be honest. Uh, other than in retrospect, okay, I understand all of country music was mad at the Dixie Chicks for whatever speaking and being female or whatever it may be. Uh-huh. To to be that mad and for that long and to have shirts that say "fuck you, D- Dixie chicks" on your shirt, what an asshole! There's not, there, I mean, there, it's there's not one justification for what a dick he was. Do we not realize how annoying conservatives are when they're mad about anything? It's almost as annoying as liberals are when they're mad about oh. anything. Oh, you both sizing this one? Oh, exciting! <laughs> <laughs> I love when people do that. <laughs> one thing about those sides <laughs> they're the same <laughs> they're, they're similar <laughs> there's a lot more to say about Beyonce and her blonde ambition as it were uh, and you know I definitely would recommend that people read um, search for Tressie McMillan Cotton's um, writing on Dolly Parton which I brought up here before and also her recent thoughts about Beyonce and her two new singles uh, Texas Hold'em and 16 Carats. Uh, it basically just talks about how Dolly Parton, too, was just this personification of um, blondness and, uh, you know, whiteness uh, within country music, but also within Americana, you know? And I think that Beyonce has always, like I said, played within Americana. And now you get to see her playing within actual country music. And it's going to be interesting to see how people are receiving this because this isn't influences like this is country you know but it's country in the sense that like it's giving you um that old style of country you know i think she even mentioned you know um you know the late 70s early 80s you know when al green was sort of making music too like when the divide between country uh and you know um soul music was not that big you know, I mean, so, some people were listening to this when it came out and they were like, well, this just sounds, you know, R&B. She's doing R&B over a little country beat. I'm like, it's it's not really that. It's going back to the roots of what country music used to be. And also, speaking of which, apparently she may be covering Jolene on this album, too. And not that Jolene mm-hmm. is exactly what you're talking about, but there's enough of a rhythm and a drive to that that it would make sense for her to cover. So songs like that. 
Yeah. I mean, I do wonder what a Jolene cover by Beyonce would sound like, if only because we already have that song Resentment, right? And mm-hmm. Resentment is... Resentment has a bit of spitfire to it. You know, she's angry. She took that Victoria Beckham demo and she said, here's a song. <laughs> uh, and Jolene, as much as I love it, it's it's a bit too simping for me. As we've said several times, I mean, if you're gay and you listen to the song Jolene, at the end of that song, you want to be friends with Jolene. You're like, what does she have? Yeah. I okay. mean, you know she's got the hookup. Uh, but that, that's some good acting, okay, from Dolly Parton because n- nowhere... Does she seem like a Jolene could take her man, okay? Right. Dolly has guns under the mattress, yeah. <laughs> okay? Right next to the unwashed bills, okay? She has pistols. Uh, she's got rifles, okay? But when she's singing Jolene, like, you believe her. You believe her as much as you believed Iowa Debris' apology to J-Lo. <laughs> what an interesting situation. I'm, it's still on my mind. And uh, this dovetails with the conversation Tina Fey had on Los Culturistas about um, telling people, you know, there's quiet luxury in not saying your every honest opinion about a piece of pop culture, namely if you're trying to make a name for yourself in the industry. And I just want to respond to that by saying, yeah, but you only live once. What are you supposed to do? Not talk about what you think about (laughs) movies. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, As far as I'm concerned, you only live twice. Or so they say. I was going to say, one of my least favorite James Bond movies. Interesting. <laughs> uh, that was such a fun conversation, by the way. Um, I was hilarious the entire episode. time. Yeah, she yeah, was yeah. hilarious. Uh, uh, and I love how there were 16 different backlashes to that interview, which tells you that she was doing something right. <laughs> right, right, right. No, people were saying things like, why Why can't we critique art blank, blank, blank? Why can't we be honest about these things if we're all, you know, obsessed with pop music? And She wasn't but, talking to you. Right. No, precisely. And also it's like, well, she's just right that like if you express an honest opinion, there are people that might not want to work with you because, you know, they know the person you were being honest about or whatever. It was just like a frank thing to say to somebody. It was a helpful thing to say. Yeah. We're fucked, you know, but <laughs> I think that... I thought a lot of the responses were very egotistical because this is a podcast where Tina Fey is talking to essentially a colleague, yes. Bowen Yang, who is on SNL, like she used to be on SNL, and she's giving him advice that is relevant to his future career, which is probably advice that she was she adhered. I think she was very much hinting at the um, entire situation that happened when she critiqued Taylor Swift. Right, precisely. Yeah. Oh my God, and the Katie Couric of it all, when she said like, there's yeah. a place in hell for women who don't support women or whatever the fuck that was. Right. Not supporting exactly. women. Ugh, I hate the verbiage of that. But it's very egotistical to be mad at that and say, Tita Fey is saying that you can't critique um, so-and-so. You, you have to be dishonest. She's not talking to you, Twitter user, with 2,000 followers. Like She is talking to someone who's on SNL like she was. Right, precisely. It wasn't about you. You were able to peek in on the conversation, but she was not directing it towards you. And of course, Tina Fey herself has landed some incredible barbs about other celebrities when she's hosted award shows and stuff. It's not like she's saying there's no uh, time to be a little cutting. You know, it's just like if you're popping off and you're just like releasing all your opinions about potential co-workers, you know, there's there's some danger there. There's some peril. And it is also disingenuous to pretend that Tina Fey does not come from the school of 
critiquing other artists because so much of 30 Rock or even Kimmy Schmidt or just the jokes that she puts into her show <laughs> are critiques yes. of, 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 of celebrities, of art. I think, you know, it's easy to... It's easy to ignore that and kind of easy to easier to get away with it when it's within the confines of, you know, a fictional show or something. Totally. Or even comedians doing stand-up, you know? Uh, I think that people are, are sort of less um, willing to let people just be funny off the cuff when it comes to a podcast because it's supposed to be giving um, your real raw thoughts, you know? It's not mixed in a comedy. But I think, you know, that... What we do, Lewis, is is comedy, you know? <laughs> oh, I have a tear in my eye. This is so touching. Um, no, I, I, I want to say also to that point, um, <laughs> uh, no, I think all, all the time about Siskel and Ebert, who are, you know, I mm. mean, they were critics, of course, so it was expected that they would be criti- critical and also, you know, bastardly from time to time. But at the same time, those two remained Chicago newspapermen their entire lives. They were not determined mm-hmm. to be a part of pop culture as it stands in Hollywood. They were not determined to like become great screenwriters or actors or whatever. They picked a lane that was specifically outside of all of that and they wanted to stay in it. And I, you know. Well, maybe if Roger hadn't written such an awful movie, he might have written other <laughs> That's ones. true. Right. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, actually, there was nothing beyond. We stayed right there. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen that moment of him, uh, speaking of being bastardly, on the red carpet with David Lynch. No. He's talking about how much uh, he kind of liked Mulholland Drive, but he still had no idea what the fuck was happening in it because he had famously disliked Lynch's other films. Yeah, like he didn't like Blue Velvet, et cetera, yeah. And and David Lynch is like, all right, Roger. (laughs) (laughs) But it's truly him on a red carpet interviewing him at, I believe, like the Golden Globes or something. Um, But it is, it's very funny. Um, exchange. I need to look that up. Yeah. You also, yeah. you just got me thinking about Joan Rivers on a red carpet when she would literally interview people and then tell them to their face they look terrible. Anyway, it's just it's it's a bygone era of of candor and um, uh, yeah. hilarity. Anyway, final thoughts I would say about um, Beyonce is you know what I'm sensing from this era. It's interesting that people are already getting upset, um, and I feel like it's largely people um, who think that she is uh, trying to tap into whiteness and sort of to sell more records. And I'm like, Beyonce's already sold enough records. Yeah. So I don't think that she is scheming to try and, you know, um, get into the country genre so then she can also get a Grammy and then CMAs as well. I mean, I'm sure she does really want a Grammy, um, to be honest, the way Jay-Z was up there. Mm-hmm. Um, that was given... Uh, Kitchen conversations. <laughs> yes. If you know what I mean. Because she was not really reacting as if she had heard this all before. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I would say that this era, it's already being received positively. And if you've seen the white girls already covering Texas Hold'em on their TikToks, this might be another I Am Sasha Fierce for her. Interesting. And well, you remember how beloved that album was by the white folks. Yes, I will say, I feel like a country, and it is a departure, a country departure is rarely the thing people love most about an artist. I'm, I'm just thinking about Joanne right now. I think in retrospect, that now feels like something kind of cool she did for herself. And to me, listening to this album, even though I love the song Texas Hold'em, it feels to me like Beyonce almost doing an album for herself. 
And I feel like mm-hmm. it might feel like a valley, but I mean, like Renaissance was so monumental. This to me feels a little yeah. bit more timid. Yeah. Well, I will say that Joanne wasn't good. <laughs> there was that. Yeah. You, I can't speak. <laughs> AO, before a, a Debris, the original AO was, uh, we weren't so supportive. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I just, I feel like maybe people are already responding to this. And the lyrics, you know, like, um, get down on the flow now. I mean, they're, they're, they're very basic t- t- TikTok leading lyrics. Oh, no, it's very, I'm doing square dancing in gym class. Let's go. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, <laughs> the gym teacher's so, looking at me and is saying, you're gay. I'm interested to see where it goes. But I think that this is more of a, I don't know. It doesn't feel like Joanne. If only because no, oh, no, Gaga, definitely even not. up to that point, had largely had a queer fan base and was largely just very like in your face and, um, you know, ballsy and a lot of um, outlandish like looks and um, sound bites. And like her attitude was just very like punk rock, you know? And I think that Beyonce has been historically more mainstream than Gaga ever was. And particularly if you were speaking of SNL again, you remember the whole uh, joke about what she was doing formation. There was a joke that Beyonce's black. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think that she had she had had such a comfortability with white America circa the single ladies era. Yeah, yeah. That I think that this, in a way, it doesn't feel like Gaga playing with um, country music and Joanne. This feels like, oh, I'm going back to um, just classic American sounds, but country music is pop music too. You know, it it's sort of like the. It's the music genre that gave Taylor her first burst before she was able to go into pop, right? And I feel like maybe that fan base has been starved for something that sounds a little like that. Not to say that she's Taylor Swifty, but starved for something that sounds like that. Because even Texas Hold'em and 16 Carats, I mean, no shade to my sister, Casey Musgraves, but... It sounds more interesting than this Casey song. Yeah, and even yeah. Maggie Rogers is dabbling in country-ish sounds now on her new single, and it just doesn't really appeal to me. There's not really a woman making pop country that I feel like I want to listen to or millennials really want to listen to that harkens back to so much of the female pop country vibes that we had Growing up, I'm thinking Carrie Underwood, even Kelly Clarkson and her earlier roots. You know, like there's really none of that happening. Casey right Musgraves, now. I would say the lyrics to her new song are a l- just a little bit too literal again. I'm missing when she was like yeah. cleverer, funnier, uh, snarkier. Um, it's not fun to me. No, it's not. One thing I will say about the new Beyonce singles, though, that I have to say, I, I shouldn't find this discouraging, but there's the lyric that says, Something about thir- I've lived 38 summers or something, which t- uh-huh. Beyonce is like 43 or 42 now. So this music is yeah. truly recorded five years ago. And I'm just saying. Well, that- she's 40. She was 42 last year uh, when she did. She turned 42 when she did her birthday show. Yeah. And I would say that that's not shocking, because if you recall her interviews before Renaissance dropped, she said that Renaissance was the first part of a three-act project no, right, that she right. recorded during COVID. But the fact that it's so it is delayed at this point, I think, yeah, just speaks to the fact that she was willing to hold it back. And I don't know that that means she's 
as excited about this material as she is the other Renaissance material. I, I mean, especially mm. since the thing with country is it's never in style or out of style. So you can kind of just release yeah. this stuff at any time. True. But I think that she's had this whole sort of plan of act one album tour the next year, act two this album, probably tour the next year for that one, and then act three. Yeah, right. What do we think act three is going to be? I mean, if it's now that this was country and the rumors were true, and it is her playing within um, traditional black music genres that have sort of um, been reclaimed by whiteness and white people. Come on, do um, <laughs> I'm seeing rock and roll shebang, for the third shebang. one. Oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. Like you mean like in the um, like a, a a Chuck Berry sort of throwback. It's like Chuck Berry, Tina Turner vein, you know? I'm thinking we're we're hearkening back to, like I said, these are all genres that she's played in before, obviously. So I think this is hearkening back to um, B-Day, to be honest. Songs like Sugar Mama, like that stuff. Like, I think that this is like, that's going to be like the rock era. Also, I, I mean, speaking of that album, Deja Vu remains one of her great underrated singles to me. And I don't know who did Five Lines before they wrote that song, but I want that energy constantly. <laughs> Bass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a perfect opening to a song. Yes. Great song. Great song. Yeah. Well, you know, I made a joke about James Bond earlier. Yes. And that was a tease of the fact that our guest this week is Lashana Lynch. At 007 herself and the star of One Love, the new Bob Marley biopic, where she plays Rita Marley, Bob's wife. Lashana Lynch, some people come on the Zoom and immediately you just are aware you're in the presence of somebody who is smart, rad, and also fucking chill, which is a surprise given the roles she has played. Like, like her personality <laughs> does not match what she is routinely cast as. Other than Miss Honey, yeah. I guess. But she's like funnier than yeah. Miss Honey. Yeah. Uh, I asked her about that too, because she is very imposing on screen, you know? But you love imposing women on screen. It's arguably the only thing I love. Yes. It, do you have a Glenda Jackson shirt? Coming soon. I wouldn't put a pat. You're right. She is the most <laughs> imposing woman in history. We talked to Allison Hill about her one time, and she literally said, I'm afraid of her. Yes. <laughs> So, yes, we have Lashana Lynch with us this week. And then, of course, we have the rest of the Super Bowl uh, to discuss. I put that Super Bowl on mute <laughs> as soon as the Beyonce commercial came out, okay? And I'm sure you can attest the saying, because I thought I thought I saw from Instagram you were at a gay viewing party yes. in L.A. for no, the Super Bowl. I was explaining to my dad the nature of this party I went to, which is this guy in the hills throws this gigantic party. You, like, donate money, and then you come in. And then they have TVs all over the place. And I was like, yeah, and it's just gay guys. And and my dad was like, so is nobody like facing the TVs? I'm like, no, nobody. <laughs> yeah. That is. <laughs> Do you remember that clip from Law and Order? Oh my SVU? God, no. And then I explained that to my dad. I was like, you have to watch this yes. Mariska Hargitay clip where she completely drags my community and how we watch sports or don't watch sports. I'm sure it'll play on the Keep It YouTube channel after we bring that up. But it's truly this man trying to claim that he is not gay. He was just in a gay bar because hockey was on. Everisco Hargitay says, was anybody watching? <laughs> it's, it's so damning. 
<laughs> She's like, you idiot. Of course it was faggots. <laughs> but I have to imagine at this Super Bowl party that as soon as the Beyonce commercial dropped, it was just people on their phones. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yes. Though, you know what? I, I actually made friends based on who properly bopped to Usher. Because you needed to not oh, discard that moment either. So we'll get into that. All right. So coming up next, we have Lashana Lynch. And after that, more Super Bowl chat. It's 2024. Abortion, trans, and gay rights, and whether our planet remains habitable for humans, are on the ballot. It's a lot, but Vote Save America's got you covered with a new initiative to help streamline your political giving for the year, the Anxiety Relief Program. Just donate what you can each month, and VSA will take care of distributing 100% of your dollars where they're needed most. So far, over 500 recurring donors have joined the program and trusted VSA to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. Head to votesaveamerica.com to sign up now. Paid for by Vote Save America. votesaveamerica.com. Not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Crooked's collab with Carrie Yuma's Love It or Leave It sneakers are 20% off now through Sunday. These are almost never on sale, so now's your chance to get a deal and treat your feet to a pair of comfy, cool shoes. Not only does each pair plant two trees in the Brazilian rainforest, but they're also covered in pictures of pundits surfing, rant wheels ranting, and other things that will seem even more insane if you don't listen to the pod. That was really going into a 12 Days of Christmas. (laughs) Four calling birds, three... Tommy John ads. <laughs> Head to crooked.com slash store and make sure you check out before Sunday night. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis. Yes. When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no. Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. 
Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Our guest today has had a truly staggering journey on the screen. She's been a spy, a warrior, a superhero, everyone's favorite teacher, and now the matriarch of the Marley family in the new biopic, One Love. We are honored to welcome to keep it the incredible Lashana Lynch. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, intro. That was an intro. <laughs> I mean, you deserve it. I really can't think of an actress who has uh, graced our screens so recently in so many films where it's just like, yep, she's great in this film. Uh, and we expect it at this point. So congrats on being great. <laughs> Thank you. I'll let my parents know. Cheers. <laughs> now, before we get into the specifics of this movie, this is the first time I think you've ever played a real person or somebody that you can actually verify with uh, they're real, like, to go talk to the person before you go and play them. Is that right? Yeah, I actually played a, two real people in drama school, my last year of drama school, mm. which is a throwback for my mind. But, um, you know, that was in the confines of, you know, teachers and education and protection. Or is this the, yeah, the first time in my career that I've been able to dive into this? And it's very new. It's a very new, different experience for sure. So when you're reading the script and you know it's a real person, I mean, and you haven't done this before, is your first instinct panic? What what goes through your head? <laughs> a big loud scream. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, um, when I first, well, actually before I read the script, I knew that the project was happening. Um, and I met up with our now director, Ronaldo Marcus Green, um, and was like, look, I know there's a, a load of women that you can see for this role. I know that you probably have your plan. I just want to say from an artist perspective and a Jamaican artist perspective, like, what's your plan? <laughs> you got in there. What's the deal? <laughs> like, tell me the lay of the land now so I can, like, prepare myself. Because, like, I was like, the whole of Jamaica are watching. I'm watching. And, like, it has to be right. And I, for some reason, I just, this, like, tiger came out in me and was just like, what do you plan for this woman? Like, 
Mrs. Marley is such a legend and I just want to make sure that she's protected and everything. And he was like, oh, no, 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 she's going to, it's going to be great. Like we have all the plans and like whoever comes on board is going to, you know, it's going to be a collaboration and, and all of that. So my kind of, my fears and worries were kind of put at ease before I'd even read the script, to be honest. So then when I met with Kingsley and then we did our chemistry read and, and I eventually got the script, I, I knew that it was going to be kind of like a family run set. There's going to be um, inf- different types of information and opinions and memories from the children who were on set and, um, you know, our advisors and our dialect coaches who had so much knowledge of the time and knowledge of the family and Bob and some of whom had even met Bob outside of the family. So I... Um, I knew that there was a lot of work to do. It wasn't a big scream, like I just said. It was more like, okay, let's, let's, we all have a job to do. We have a responsibility. Let's just make sure that this is done in the most sensitive, calm and intricate, detailed way possible. And this is Rinaldo Marcus Green who directed this. And he had just come off of King Richard. Had he already made that film by the time that you were making this? Like, what was the timeline like of making this film? How much time did it take to shoot it and get it in front of us now? I think I'd watched King Richard the previous year. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was already in the can and and released and and all that good stuff. Um, And this process from me get from me sitting down with Ronaldo to get in the role was maybe seven, eight months. Okay. So I had like a whole summer to read and, you know, absorb and to ask all the questions and to sit down with my, Mrs. Marley as well and go round and, you know, chill and hang out casually with this legend. Um, <laughs> um, and really like get immersed in the world and, revisit my culture in a different way because my parents are Jamaican and you know I have a Jamaican upbringing but I wasn't there in the 70s so it was like a different thing for me to explore and dive into um and that was a that was a good amount of time actually eight months to sit with it maybe sometimes too much time I feel like I needed years but also if I had more time I would have I don't know just got into my head a little bit more in the like the responsibility like as parents who were born around the corner from where, you know, some of the sets we shot um, on in Jamaica and just people having more opinions on what it could be. Um, I was able to throw a lot away in that time, which was helpful for anxiety. No, I was just going to say, I was watching an interview with Kingsley Benadir where he talked about meeting tons and tons of people who knew Bob and like kind of getting little scraps of anecdotes from all of them. And I was wondering... You obviously talked to Rita herself, but is it ever actually too much to get all of these personal anecdotes? Like you can't possibly, you know, work with all of these, you know, really, I'm sure, amazing stories while you're doing this work on the screen. Yes, sometimes it's overload. um, And sometimes, you know, as an artist playing a real person, you just want to absorb everything. Like everything's important. What someone's opinion was of this person when they were 16 to their opinion of them now to like how she spoke to how she didn't speak, how she conducted herself in interview. What was she like in, in house? What was she like in this private moment that this person had with them that no one knew about? 
Like it was really, um, it was just a melting pot of just stuff. So after a while, you do have to kind of put it all aside and think about what's going to be helpful for your process. Um, and what was helpful was having Ziggy Sedella and Neville Garrick, who is Bob Marley's best friend and art director on set, who were able to correct things and like ensure that all the costumes were like immaculate and like everything was as, as, as they remember it as possible. And also that the backdrops of the shows were as detailed as possible and that, you know, little moments that you might want to find in a scene on a regular set, maybe we'd be like, let's just do this. Let's just like see what happens. But actually, no, we can't just see what happens in this. Did they actually do that? Would this have happened? Is this how Bob and Rita communicated? What's realistic? So then we'd look to the side and say, like, Ziggy, is that, is that within what your understanding of your mum is? And you'd be like, no, I think it'd be, I think she'd kind of, respond like this or actually no I actually think she would swear in this moment I was like I can swear she's she swore in the well okay cool. <laughs> I can swear all day like this is great um, so you know you take the rough with the smooth and and whatever's helpful in any given moment you kind of I don't know it helps you add more sauce to each scene mm -hmm. that must be such a 180 from some of the other roles you've done because I feel like even something that is a historical film like The Woman King which I absolutely loved I love Gina Prince by the Woods work so much. The Agoji yeah. in that film, historically, was there much detail to go on for picking specific individual characters within that film? Or was it a lot of guesswork, I guess, had to be done for a film like this? Interestingly, when you initially research this person, you see all sorts of things that are like public. You see the mm -hmm. interviews. You see things that are written about this person, things that kind of make sense from like an outside perspective um, that are helpful at the beginning just to create a, rant, a, a general picture. But, um, you know, me, when I'm talking publicly, there's nerves and there's excitement and there's, you know, oh, should I mention that? That might be too embarrassing to say. Let me hold back. Let me do too much. Let me, every day changes. So whenever I was watching interviews with, Mrs. Marley, I was like, this is an interview. I have to remember my experience of interviews. Like, how do I feel? How did she feel that day? Did she give everything she holding back? And then when I saw some like clips of her just roaming around town, like there's some videos of her in Ghana, I was like, this is a different, this is a shift of a person. She's walking around free with her friends, smiling, joking. You can get to hear her laugh, her sense of humor how chill she is. You kind of got to grasp the spirit of the person. So then when I met her, I was like, ah, that's more in line with those videos I've watched. Mm -hmm. um, so the information on Bob is wide and vast, mm -hmm. but on her, not so much. So I guess like <laughs> in comparison to Kingsley, it was nice, just like with, with, with the woman King. These are real people, but you also have creative license because there's so much that we don't know um, unfortunately in the world about her that I've got to create with the children. So I'd ask Sadella, her daughter, some questions about what she was like as a mother. Like, was she a disciplinarian? Um, did she kind of, you know, did she speak quicker with you? Did she speak slower, more considered? And I was just painting these pictures with the children that 
helped me to, I don't know, form her in-house personality, which is what was more, most important for me because a lot of her scenes are with, are intimate scenes with Bob. And you know that when, like when you two were talking outside of the podcast, you, you might joke about something, it'd be, like your laugh might be different. Um, mm-hmm. But here, maybe you have like a really set laugh <laughs> that is like, uh, <laughs> that is going to like, I don't know, make you come across in a different way. So yeah, I I was grateful for, for what I had, but I was really grateful that there almost wasn't enough because now I get to educate the world on this woman who is incredible in so many ways. And I guess this may be the example of who she is. If you've never met her before, never heard her music, never even knew that Bob was married to this woman, um, you get to learn her in this way, which I think is a, a pretty strong one. Actually, when I look back at your movies in the past four years, almost all of them to me seem to be vast undertakings. First of all, you have Rita Marley, which learning her story and learning how she is, that's already like a task enough. But then I look at The Woman King, which has this current of intensity running through it. And the direction is so specific and so breakneck that I feel like that must have been incredibly strenuous. Even Matilda has so many musical sequences that are mind boggling. Is making a movie for you just pure stress? I mean, is any of this like a good time? Like it feels all extremely, (laughs) extremely taxing. I'm so glad you asked me that because when I first started out in the industry, I was like, this is great, fun and games. We get to play around and, you know, learn just a few lines because I didn't have many earlier on in my career. And um, it felt like play. It really felt like kind of going into your inner child a lot. Now it's funny you mentioned stress because, you know, more responsibility, more problems. You know, you have more to think about, more to prove, Um you want to dive into the work deeper. So you, there's kind of like a, a semi-removal of self that happens if the, you're on a six-month shoot. There's no way that you can just mess around for six months. You've got to be all in for those six months. And actually, then there's the prep, which may be three months prior. And then there's the coming out of the role. There may also be three months or six or even a year, um, depending on, I guess, the emotional levels of, of the film. And every single time... I take on a role like Azogi or Miss Honey or Rita Marley, it feels like I have to find a deeper process that's going to protect me more as a person so that when I wrap the shoot, I am coming back to the self that I know, not this other person that has been kind of got lost on the way with me diving so deeply into my actor's process. Um, and also having, you know, kind of the soldiers at the side, your, your friends and the family that are reminding you to take a break and drink water and have a weekend where possible. And all those things you don't always listen to, to be honest. Like, sure, I'll drink a glass of water, but like, am I really going to finish it? Because I'm so hyper-focused <laughs> on this six months. You know, it gets a little wild sometimes, but um, it, it has at times been really stressful. And I think that as artists, it's really important to, to discuss that and interrogate it for younger audiences and younger people who want to get into the industry thinking that it's all fun and games. It's tiring. It's really taxing on, on your body, on your spirit, because it's just so, your mind is just on overdrive all the time. Um, and 
striking the healthy balance is not something that you're just taught early on. It's not something that they kind of gift you in drama school. You're just so excited that by the time you've gone through a few years, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm really tired. How did I get here? Okay, what do I do about it? <laughs> Let me start asking questions, you know? <laughs> Well, even the question, I guess, going back to what you said about Rita Marley in interviews and how she's different in person, when I think about a Lashana Lynch role, that's usually a character who's very imposing, very no-nonsense, and then there's bits of humor that we get in there, and you get like a full three-dimensional character, obviously, but would your friends, would people say that you give off imposing, or is this a sort of trait that you feel like you've had to build up for some of the roles that just sort of come to you? So firstly, it's funny that you mentioned the humour. I've literally tried to make every single role that I've had a comedy for like my entire career. <laughs> well, you're I'm British, like, so I point. feel like it comes... Lewis and I have said that for some reason, British actors are just funny, naturally, more so than American <laughs> actors have to be. No, you guys feel obligated to have a personality in a way American actors don't. It's just the truth. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I hadn't even thought about that. I'm, I just selfishly wanted to just make everything like bouncy. Even when there's like distress and trauma happening in the scene, I'm like, I think this is time that she like winks at the other character, don't you think? And they're like, no, this is a historical drama, stop it. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, so I'm very chill. Like I'm mm-hmm. maybe too chill sometimes. I throw a lot of things away. I'm like a little boring. People might not want to hear that, but I am. I don't really like do much. I'm not really outside, so to speak. Mm. I like to be really uh, chill in my house or in somebody else's house, sipping tea, having some food and like just discussing like heart stuff because it's not, you know, you don't always get with being busy. You don't always have the opportunity to talk about how we feel about things. And it's really important to me to, when someone says, how are you doing? For me to not be like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, great. How are you? I like, I really want to consider the question. So I'm a really like, as much as I dive deep into my career, I like to dive deep into myself as well. So my friends, I guess, know me to be <laughs> dry. Is that the word? Maybe dry, sarcastic <laughs> and um, carefree, I'd say. Cut two, my friends cut right into the show and they're like, she's not that way. <laughs> she's not funny in any way. <laughs> she lied. <laughs> uh, also, um, I, I want to say something else about the fact, not just your role in The Woman King, but in uh, No Time to Die. In both of these cases, I feel like you're playing a character who is not just exciting to watch, but like honestly, like kind of a breakthrough. Like somebody we're waiting to see on the screen, like this, like, powerful black woman inhabiting this authoritative role that we are so used to seeing people like Sean Connery play or Steve McQueen or, you know, just like classic characters of lore who all happen to be white. When you go and play these roles as a part of you thinking, I've not seen a role like this before and I have to play it now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I, um, (laughs) when I went into audition and then do a screen test with, Daniel for No Time to Die, I was like, this is going to be really cool. You know, Daniel's cool. Barbara Broccoli's amazing. Like, I, I'm really, like, ready to just take on something new and fresh and chill. And then they were like, by the way, you're 007. And I was like, stop. Wait, wait, wait. 
<laughs> okay, cool. So responsibility. Okay, cool. So this is a role that you could have got a man for and you haven't. So now I really want to make it my business to turn this into something revolutionary. Um, and that doesn't come with ease, obviously. It comes with, like you said, a lot of stress um, and a lot of, um, when I say stress, I mean, not that the whole shoot was stressful, just in that, like, you know, that very low humming stress, like a duck with the, like, the quick legs under the water, where <laughs> you're just like, I know that this has to be something that can stand the test of time. I know that, you know, I watched Matilda growing up and that there's a new generation who are going to get a whole different Miss Honey that I have to make sure that they love this Miss Honey. I have to make sure that Azogi and the Woman King really does sit with people's like hearts and that they remember her. Um, so it's not something that I feel deeply like crazy stressed about. It's more that I want this moment in cinema with these big roles that like mean so much to people and mean a lot to the franchise that they can, um, they can be characters that you can refer to. Do you know what I mean? In terms of what's my example of a, a strong black woman? What's my example of being vulnerable and not being ashamed to be vulnerable? What's my example of being an incredible artist, just like in One Love? Um, I, I, I just want to make sure that genuinely if I were to put this to the side for a second and just say, I'm going to write poetry today, or maybe I'll just make jam. Like this is going to be a role that will make me proud in my, in the span of my career, but also is going to maybe inspire someone to go on a set one day and push this character to be all that they can be off the page. Because it's really important to mention that some of these characters that you see on screen, they don't start like that on the page. It really is a collaboration to create someone that is going to be um, as fierce as she can be or as vulnerable as she can be or as like nervous as she can be whilst being strong, whilst being complicated, whilst being like a real woman. Um, and that comes with you actually having to tap into your artist brain and think, what, what do I... I'm the only one defending this character. I'm the only one playing her. Um, mm -hmm. And again, they could have got a man. They could have got someone more experienced, but they got me. So now it's time to use my voice and create someone special. Are there sort of films that you hope that you'll be able to make at some point in the future or roles that don't usually, I feel like you haven't done yet? Bridesmaids. <laughs> Bridesmaids. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's get you in a comedy. I feel like this is the thrust of what we're hearing today. I'm a comedy gal. I think I'm pretty funny sometimes. I could get away with it. I could make people laugh. Like, I genuinely, between animation and something like a bridesmaids, mm -hmm. I feel like there's this, I don't know, there's this, like, opening for Black women that hasn't really, like, had its chance to mm -hmm. um, sing, really. And something like a bridesmaids or like a soul, Disney's soul or mm. um, a Moana or something, you know what I mean? That like you're telling meaningful stories, but also it's, it's light and feel good. I really enjoy that. That's the kind of stuff that I like to watch at home. Um, and in terms of me and I guess what I've cultivated in my career, listen, I was just happy to get in the room at the beginning. Yeah. I was happy to even be there. Mm -hmm. I was happy to be considered and that people 
could finally see that I had something to contribute to the project rather than you're to this or you're to that. So we're going to go with someone more experienced or more, I guess, palatable. Um, I do think that the more that you discuss who you are and your opinions and, and how much you stand by a project and the meaning of the project and the meaning of this character, then filmmakers and producers and studios really start to understand how, how deeply you tap in to contribute to the, to the franchise or to the studio's work. Um, because they're not just coming in and being like, I'm just going to play this role and, you know, if it's good, let me know. If it's not, let me know. <laughs> um, I, I just like to have an impact. And I think that the roles that I've chosen have been really strong and deep and, um, and fascinating to me. In the future, though, I'd, I'd like less stress. I would like less stress. <laughs> I would like to show up to work and just be like laughing all day for months and I think that um, that also might shift something in me as an artist. It might give me more of an understanding of how to, I don't know, approach text and just continue to be on my quest to make everyone funny. <laughs> <laughs> From Maria Rambo to Rita Marley, I want everyone to have their, their humour moment because that's what I connect with most and I hope that's what kind of audiences can connect with too. Before we let you go, which character in Bridesmaids speaks most to you spiritually why are you doing this to me (laughs) Uh, um, okay i'm a massive maya rudolph fan massive Mm -hmm. so i I, just off head i would choose her character oh my gosh melissa mccarthy though that is such a brilliant role for her and what she did with that role is brilliant um i'd say a mashup of those two characters could make someone special good Maybe. hybrid good hybrid yeah. thank you yes. <laughs> yeah. well, thank, well, thank, you. You, thank you so much for being here thank you for having me this has been a pleasure oh my honestly. god whenever you want just come back just pop onto the zoom if you could thanks yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Ooh, i don't know i'll just be like hey guys, chill yes <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
If you can believe it, this is the 58th Super Bowl that Lewis and I have covered on Keep It. <laughs> I am waiting to die of old age. Please, God, take me. Remember our first Keep It guest, Vince Lombardi? <laughs> I said that Bart Starr has potential. Uh, now, this is the 58th Super Bowl, which is always funny in terms of thinking about American culture and TV culture and, you know, our whole um, Roman Colosseum culture, yes. et cetera. Because where are we in terms of um, Grammys and Oscars ceremonies? What do you mean? How, how many have there been? Just in general. Oh, the Oscars were coming up on 96 and then the Grammys okay. started in 1959. So there's been more. And then the Super Bowl started in 1967, I believe. Yeah. So... The Hollywood faggots were having their whole thing long before real Americans got to gather to watch the Super Bowl. No, right. They, they co-opted our culture. Yes, this is an appropriation. Yes. <laughs> they said, what if we could have that, but without Celeste Holm? <laughs> Keep her name out your mouth, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> first off, I'm going to say there was some hot people playing the game. And this time, I have their names correct. I don't care that you do. I don't want to hear who these people are. I don't want to talk about the football. I don't want to. It's it's a confusing game. It's a strange game. It's also a very staccato. It like starts and stops. Let's just keep it going. I mean, I do want to say that what I love about football players and obviously basketball players are I like the openings of the game where they are strutting um to the locker room from their cars and it's like a fashion show right that's that kind of newish yeah 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 where and 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 they pretend the camera's not there and they're truly giving mm. you like a george michael like walk yeah well i mean there's christian mccaffrey this man who you pro- don't know his name but he was the one carrying a um like sixty thousand dollar birkin bag Cute. As he was walking in, I'm like, that is the kind of cunt I want to see in a sports game. Right. Audrey Hepburn. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I want to say that Page Six described it as, oh, Christian McCaffrey carries edgy $68,000 Hermes bag to 2024 Super Bowl. All right, Page Six. <laughs> edgy. edgy. <laughs> <laughs> Very controversial. Yes. <laughs> he held a purse. Right. I do it all the time. Come on. No, if anyone knows where I can get a knockoff of that $68,000 Birkin bag, though, I would love to own it. Okay. So I think that's going to happen for you. The DMs. Yeah. If you have a shop on Canal Street, I will I will meet you there. Yeah. You'll so. dive roll out of your car and into it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the real draw of the Super Bowl this year for me was Usher. Yes, quite. I will say this about the uh, Usher performance. Not that other Super Bowl performances are pretentious, but this is about as unpretentious as it gets. Like pure mm. entertainment, dance moves, down to roller skating. I mean, he, which, by, by the way, that might have been the best choreographed part of the entire thing, even though his dance moves were, of course, flawless and he's giving you Juilliard birthday stripper. Mm-hmm. Um, no, when he was on the roller skates during uh, OMG and mm-hmm. the way they were moving all together on a grid back and forth, that I had never seen before on any type of performance before. I mean, I'm literally thinking of when Gwen did that, Gwen Stefani did that live music video at the, I believe, Grammys of mm-hmm. Make Me Love You. There was some roller skating there. Mm-hmm. And I believe people also fell to the ground in that performance. So this was sort of mm-hmm. a, uh, a 
a more polished version of that. Mm. Well, that's so she could switch out. Right. Yeah. Because there was a stunt double at one point. Uh, what a weird Gwen Stefani era. Even though I like that song yeah. and a couple other songs on that particular album, it was so low energy and adult contemporary compared to Sweet Escape Gwen. Right, right. And also, um, I, I think that live filming was makes it one of the most expensive music videos of all time or something. Like it's up there with Scream by Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. I loved the roller skates part of Usher's performance. There were a lot of gays tweeting that it was giving Starlight Express. Uh, let me tell you something. N- no one knows that fucking musical. Yeah, right. Okay? Yeah, it didn't remind me of that at all, other uh, than there are roller skates. Yeah. Okay, so you and your friends from Barnard College, <laughs> who used to listen to uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, flop ones at that uh, on Friday nights instead of going to parties. I guess you saw the Starlight Express reference, but nobody else did. Right, right, right. Or Xanadu, right? Could have been that. Mm, oh, well, you know what? I didn't see that many Xanadu references, but Xanadu is the superior roller skate musical. Or, sorry, superior roller skate scene. Nothing else about that musical. Oh, no, maybe the musical, the stage musical. I'm talking about the movie, but yeah. Yeah, uh, the movie is ostensibly set in a roller rink. Right. No, and then, but you, it's, you don't get to Xanadu until the end. Truly, they're drawing up the plans for Xanadu. And they're like, one day there's going to be an amazing roller disco party here. We'll wait until the, <laughs> in an hour and a half. Maybe we'll see it. Gene Kelly's Very like, I'll do a little movie. soft shoe until then. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right about Usher in the sense that this was very much just him giving showmanship. Totally. You could underestimate how much he was working, actually, until you got to, I believe, Burn, where I have never seen a human being more covered in sweat. I mean, it was like National mm. Geographic level how sweaty he was. Um, and I was, mm. it, it was cool to see in a way because he was working really hard and it looked so effortless. You know, he's just like smoothly moonwalking back and forth for like 15 minutes up until that point. Mm-hmm. The theatricality, too, of him even moving when the camera's not firmly placed on him yeah, was great. Um, I loved how he really just gave, like, a love letter to Atlanta. He took us to the A. <laughs> I love visiting the A. Yeah, mm-hmm. as I call it. And, and everybody there wants me to call it that, too. <laughs> uh, really just a love letter to Atlanta and also his millennial and elder fans to be honest there was no there wasn't even a new single no that was debuted there but i will say that usher has a new album out and i love it it's called coming home right it has nothing to do with the john voight jane fonda film of the same name right okay go ahead no absolutely not no burst during in this okay yeah, yeah. There's a song called Cold-Blooded featuring The Dream, and I think we know that one thing The Dream does is make great R&B music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I did have yeah. to laugh. I did have to laugh when somebody popped out and said it's the 20th anniversary of the Confessions album. Okay, it's not like Sgt. Pepper, girl. I'm not going to like, put that on. Like, it just, it's not that level. You know what I mean? Maybe in your household. <laughs> It's, I mean, just it's the 20th anniversary of a lot of things. It's the 20th anniversary of the Raising Helen soundtrack. I don't need to see that at the Super Bowl either. <laughs> Bitch, are you comparing <laughs> Confessions to Raising Helen's? Confessions is one of the best R&B albums ever created. I don't know about that. Best? It was good. I mean, it's from the 2000s, so it can't be that good, first of all. Second of all, I like the singles. 
And I mean, uh, <sighs> you don't have to call, which, by the way, he only did a snippet of. Actually, that's a critique I have of this um, Super Bowl performance. Mm. It felt like until you got to Yeah, which they really devoted some time to and let the song build until it was that climactic thumping party music we got. It felt mm-hmm. like everything was like it was always between songs. It, you never just like mm-hmm. settled into a song like Burn kind of had a moment. Caught Up had about mm-hmm. 20 seconds. It felt like You Don't Have to Call had about 15 seconds. Well, I mean, I will say that one, um, he did sort of lean into the um, the panty dropper songs a bit too early. Mm-hmm. And, I, and not to compare it to Beyonce, but, you know, if you, you're starting it out with a big major song and then you slide into the slower jams and then you pick it back up again at the end, that is what we sort of, maybe should have seen so it felt like it was more cohesive you know i mean starting with caught up was good but i think that you know starting with yeah might have been even better we also didn't get a lot of pop usher we didn't get a lot of his edm um you know white america jams which was (laughs) shocking to me we also didn't get really early usher a lot you know it like really was like the 8701 era usher i thought mostly um which was fine, and of course, that's like the music most people know of him. But um, we must mm-hmm. talk about the issue of Alicia Keys. This is what's going to happen here. So she, you see her appear, and she has like a dress behind her. It's fluttering in the wind. It's like she's in the opening credits of PBS's Mystery. Um, and we're like <laughs> waiting for the note. We hear the song happening. And the first thing that came out of her mouth, <laughs> it's just so funny to watch. Like, we just had an earthquake recently in L.A., it's you could see a ripple hit the crowd when the wonky note came out of her mouth. And I am actually grateful for it because it was such a gag that it was so like mm. uh, immediately. Well, I'm hosting um, SNL with Alicia Keys in two weeks. Yeah, you so better watch out. I thought she was perfect. <laughs> and if you watch the YouTube video now, she was. Yeah, they say so they edited the hell out of that YouTube video, yeah. by the way, and fixed the note. I will say that. It was funny. Yes. Everyone visibly reacted. There was a very funny tweet that I saw that said Alicia Keys, her body tee, because she looked fucking great oh, in this uh, lovely red costume. cat yes. suit. It said her body tee, her voice needs tea. <laughs> My friend Chase Mitchell tweeted, um, it sounded like that was the first time she spoke today. <laughs> <laughs> Me recording, keep it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Get the ginseng going. Yeah. This wasn't shocking to me, by the way, because it sort of confirmed a thing that people, specifically black people, have always said about Alicia Keys. The girl is not really a singer. Yeah, she's a, she's fabu- a great songwriter. Yes, musician, fabulous musician. Yes, musician, uh, like all around um songwriter um she could she can play the hell out of the piano she can construct beautiful songs million dollar bill for instance an amazing song yes so many of her songs are beautiful fallen uh you don't know my name if you ask me i'm ready these songs sound beautiful in hell's kitchen the uh upcoming broadway musical featuring music from alicia keys because it has you know singers singing them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, rude. Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> of course, the song she did do a piece of, If I Ain't Got You. I'm just not a fan of that song. To me, it's written around wanting mm. to belt, and the sentiment is too basic. Honestly, 
The only Alicia Keys song I fucking love is Gangsta Lovin' with Eve. I think, and I love the sample in that song of uh, Yarborough and Peoples Don't Stop the Music. Love that. Uh, what song? Gangsta Lovin'. L-U-V-I-N. Just say it one more time. Yeah. <laughs> Gangsta Lovin'. <laughs> you know what you're reminding me of? There was an episode of Jeopardy where somebody had to say Gangsta's Paradise and he said Gangster's Paradise. He was white. And they marked him wrong. I was like, oh, you go on, Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to be rude earlier anyway. I will I just want to point out that I love Alicia Keys' music. I think it's it's beautiful. Um, yeah, just know her voice box has a bit of a concrete jungle where dreams aren't made of sometimes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? And it's I think Hell's Kitchen is a fun show, particularly because hearing Shoshana Bean sing Fallen was revelatory. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because usually when I think of covers of Fallen, I think of bad American Idol auditioners. And I am driven well, to violence when that. I hear that song sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> I will say that I had sort of forgotten about their joint song, My Boo. Which was a big hit at the time, but you don't really hear it anymore. It was. Yeah. Mostly because I hate the word boo now. It, it does feel tough to say the word boo. It just doesn't belong in 2020s. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like the only people saying my boo are millennial gay men. I specifically have about three friends who still use the phrase boo when texting me. And I do get a chill. <laughs> Again, a good way? No, not a good okay, way. Okay, you're, good you're way. chilled. Got it. Okay, yeah. Yes. The word has lost all sort of meaning to me, which is why when they played the song, I was, I'd sort of forgotten about it, which I guess sort of goes against me saying that Confessions is such a legendary album. But I think it is a legendary album to women. You think so? Name the yeah. name the women. You think you think people are coming at this the way they are, like uh, 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 Jagged Little Pill. The sisters. Okay. All right. All right. The, well, the sisters aren't listening to Jagged Little Pill, Lewis, <laughs> or Sergeant. My Pepper. sisters are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe Sergeant Salt and Pepper. <laughs> oh, but I will say, so when we got to yeah, and then uh, you know, Ludacris did his famous rap. I think besides Jay Z doing Heartbreaker, I can't picture another male rapper that a bunch of gay guys would sing along to, and that's exactly what we got at my party. So I actually have to applaud Ludacris for um, bridging communities. <laughs> I think there's something about a Ludacris rap, particularly from the early mid two thousands, that everyone knows most of those lyrics yeah definitely also i mean his gossip folks with missy elliott one of the great features of all time right i mean and when you compare Ludacris in that era to missy elliott they were the funniest people yes rapping at the time whatever i think about whatever i think about megan the stallion now i think a better comparison for her is Ludacris. yeah mm, yes 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 She's very funny. They have a similar flow. And I think that I'm always going to be laughing when I listen to a Megan Thee Stallion song. There's something kind of lighthearted about the both of them generally, too, even when she's touching on heavier topics. Yeah. Topics like snakes. <laughs> and her. <laughs> but not her. But not, oh, her. Also, but not that her who was also there. Our favorite award show, Phantom, yes. popped up at the Super Bowl, which was <laughs> shocking. I thought she was trapped at the Grammys. No, under the stage, again, with Diane Warren, who is the warden at the Oscars. Yes. <laughs> she looked great, and she sounded great playing guitar. And I think there was a beautiful story sort of attached to it, because the first time she had ever been at the Super Bowl, was she, she was about nine or ten, and she sang the national anthem. 
Oh, amazing. Which, by the way, we have forgotten to acknowledge that Reba sang the national anthem. And uh, by the way, apparently we're getting a reboot of the show, Reba, or there's a they're filming a pilot for it. And I just want to say, okay, I can't believe we haven't done that 10 more times. Like Reba is just an institution. She's, by the way, any age possible. She could still be 36. I have no idea. Or she's 77. Mm. I have no idea. We gave her that show Malibu Country with Lily Tomlin. But anyway, Reba is just one of these things that she really is a good emblem for country music itself because it was never in style or out of style, as I've said before. I think it says a lot about the state of the economy as well as she's still a single mom who works too hard. (laughs) Aren't aren't those kids, haven't they flown the coop already? (laughs) She should be retired. (laughs) Oh my God, is Fancy a fine song. It is a fine song. Yeah. Last thing I will say about Usher is it was nice that Will I Am was basically shrouded in a costume. Right. And it, it, Will I Am was muted. Let's just put that out there. Right. Because a little Will I Am goes far enough. Right. Well, it's it's like a you know, a radioactive element. You know what I mean? Like you if if exposed too much, you know, <laughs> now you're Marie Curie. You have the Nobel Prize, but you're dead. And I think Little John was also great as well so it was nice to see these people pop up look i mean even when they did that like uh, a quick hit of turn down for what and then just people mm. freaking out like it needed that energy boost so other than that i think that ushers halftime performance was really good i don't think it's going to crack the top 10 list that we made uh if you haven't heard lewis and i's top 10 ranked super bowl halftime performances it is on the keep it youtube channel but i would put this somewhere in Maybe the top 20? Uh, No, no. I mean, it would be in the top 15, I think, for me. Honestly, there are just a couple too many glitches that made it not as streamlined as it could be. Like, the camera seemed to be pointed at the wrong things from time to time. You know, again, I kept saying, like, it it felt like we were segueing between hits as opposed to just landing on a hit that we all love. Um, Yeah, just it it wasn't flawless. And also just I think the the catalog is not as iconic as the other people who who are on the list. I mean, just like even if even Rihanna who is not in our top 10, I think those songs are all stronger. I want to say about Usher, and maybe ask you this question, do you think that a lot of Usher's popularity and maybe less of the familiarity with millennials and younger people who are about to be watching this Super Bowl wasn't really there because... There is the sentiment that Justin Timberlake, when he came onto the music scene, sort of swallowed up Usher's career. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of fair. It does feel like once Sexy Back hit, maybe Usher took a back seat. You know, he did pop up again with OMG. But you, no, you're right. It does feel like uh, Justin Timberlake was like, I'm going to do the sweaty, um, the gap changing room music and uh, mm-hmm. take that Usher. <laughs> And the OMG Scream Climax era of Usher was really something that he could have done a bit earlier. And it's interesting. I feel that era of Usher comes much later than you would have expected. Isn't that around like 2007? OMG is after that. It's like 2010 or 11. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it could have come much earlier for Usher, that sort of pop era. I think he would have done great doing Sexy Back or songs like that, to be honest. But he did sort of take a step back to the large popularity of Justin Timberlake at the time, which is common. You slap some blonde wig on somebody and 
Justin was Toros from Bring It On. Oh, okay. There, finally a reference I understand. Yes. Gabrielle Union, by the way, at the game. <laughs> Everybody was at the fucking game. I, I was sort of with gays who kept wondering, why is Gaga at the game? Why is Ariana Grande at the game? What's happening here? And I kept reminding them that the Super Bowl is just a big party, an event where celebrities show up to every year. No, it's like the Kentucky Derby or something. Yeah, just uh, scores and scores of people show up. Actually, so Jimmy Kimmel, my boss, was there in a booth of of Las Vegas people. And I was shocked to see this group of people. It was like Guy Fieri, Wayne Newton, Carrot Top popping out of nowhere in his Reba wig. And <laughs> just like Vegas showed up. I was hoping Kylie would be there too, but I guess she's been out of Vegas for a little while. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of suspicion that Gaga was there because of some telephone thing with Beyonce. And I think we all need to let that go. <laughs> she They've forgotten about she, it. Because she doesn't even like the song Telephone, right? Didn't she say something like... She doesn't? Uh, Gaga doesn't. Mm, that wouldn't shock me. It's, Does she like anything anymore? Uh, the funniest thing about Miss Gaga, we always talk about Beyonce being withholding. Do you remember when Gaga made her Zyrtec commercial earlier this year? Oh, yeah. And she got dragged for it. So she posted an Instagram of her allegedly working on the Chromatica tour DVD. Ma'am, that tour was three years ago. <laughs> Chromatica is a condemned planet. We aren't even allowed back there anymore. <laughs> it's overly polluted. It's right over there with Pluto. Yeah, right. The government has actually said Chromatica doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's been downgraded, Yeah. <laughs> Along with Gag City, yes. Gag City, you know she's supposed to be going on tour soon. Supposed to be, right, okay. Yeah, so we're going to be reporting live from the Nicki Minaj <laughs> tour soon. <laughs> uh, the Super Bowl, I guess there were other things that happened there. It was the Taylor Swift ball, according to Swifties and much of the media, which still won't shut up about uh, them kissing on the field at the end of the game. But... It is funny that Taylor Swift was barely present, at least in terms of the actual game that you saw on TV. Right. No, I mean, like she she obviously came out into the field and kissed him afterwards or whatever, but I was not. It didn't feel like the people who came to tune in for her would have come away with like a major fix or anything like that, even though she was there with Ice Spice and Blake Ice Lively. Spice. Yes. And Lana Del Rey, I believe. Yes, correct. Who I get, who when Lana, it got really raucous in the booth, she like walked away again. <laughs> if you, if somebody's going to walk away from Taylor she Swift this month, it's Lana Del Rey. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lana has been trying to escape Taylor Swift for quite some time, right. and I don't think she's going to escape. Uh, no, 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 no. She's exactly where she belongs. Unfortunately, um, I will say though, it's like the most watched non-news broadcast in television history. That, I have to say, is a little depressing for me as somebody who every year the story about the Oscars as we lost a little bit of uh, momentum from last year. Like, you know, there's way more people on mm. streaming than on cable right now. So, like, the numbers keep dwindling. And I kept being comforted by the fact that the decline in viewership for, like, major award shows is just because fewer people have cable. And now I see mm. the ratings for this fucking thing. And I'm like, oh, no, people really just like football. I just always assume, in my mind, the highest rated show ever is still the series finale of MASH. Which, an amazing television series. If you haven't watched the entire thing, uh, Gary Berghoff, quite underrated. Loretta Swit, we miss you. <laughs> but people really do love football. And I feel like each year the Super Bowl gets higher ratings anyway. 
So there's something in the fact that the Super Bowl is still the one thing that Americans tune in for every year in droves. Right. I'm just, can't we just can we take this energy and put it into like women's volleyball? Is it that hard? I just want to see people in high ponies slapping things. I don't really have any other thoughts about the Super Bowl. The commercials were there, but even the commercials sort of got drowned out by the whole Beyonce of it all. Right, right, right. And also, it's just, they were pretty conventional commercials just starring really huge people. You know, it's like, oh, there's like a kind of funny commercial, but it does have Jennifer Aniston in it. You know, it just, I also, I have to say, I know we are here celebrating pop culture. I know this is basically just completely in line with what we talk about on a weekly basis. Loving commercials that much is just depressing. I don't like getting into it. Like something about the Super Bowl is kind of gruesome to me. You know, just... It's it's like a big car show or something. Okay, so do you mean commercials in the sense of the Super Bowl of it all where we're paying millions of dollars for 30 seconds of airtime? Or do you mean commercials in general? No, no, I mean like this, where it's just like the bonanza okay. about who spends the most money to get a celebrity in a vaguely funny ad. You know, it just seems like we're way out from the heyday of amazing commercials. And I, everything's been done and everything feels repetitive to me. I don't mean to be a Scrooge about it, but it's just not an exciting American event for me. No, I feel like there is something to be said in seeing a nerds cluster commercial and it's mostly animated nerds buffoonery. And then at the end, you cut to Addison Ray barely popping a nerds cluster into her mouth. Which is far and away from Cindy Crawford arriving at a truck stop and going to get a uh, Coca-Cola. Right. Yes. Iconography. And also, Mm -hmm. it's like there's way too much like homages to things we remember from some other time ago. Like we have no ability to make new mainstream iconography now. We can only reference. Well, it's the RuPaul's Drag Race of commercials conundrum now. Let's blame her. Just referencing itself. Yeah. (laughs) The Ouroboros, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Ouroboros. <laughs> I think the commercial that really sort of bummed me out the most was the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. I'm sorry. But the one with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, and then they're going into the studio to see J-Lo and singing a bad rap song, and then Tom Brady is there, and they're also wearing Dunking track jackets. The whole thing seemed very unfunny it seemed lame yeah I'm sorry no. and it also had nothing to do with why we have found ben affleck's association with dunkin donuts funny for the past few years and i think additionally too it's like these are all people who kind of make sporadic pop cultural appearances like you you, you can't really expect to get like a big matt damon moment you know, like he he do, he does movies like Air and stuff, but he's not like out and about. So when these people actually do show up for these, you know, like mediocre commercials, it's like more depressing. You know what I mean? Like you came out for that? Like we got that from you? I don't know. It also just feels like we're now in an era where wherever ad execs are cooking up these commercials have lost the creative sauce that they used to have, which doesn't shock me when you consider the state of Hollywood in general. Uh, this just sort of replacement of actual creators with people who are just thinking about numbers and thinking about how many celebrities can we get into this one commercial that will have different sort of groups talking about it. It feels very algorithm created. Right. Because if I'm thinking about creating a Super Bowl commercial and you're thinking about iconography, uh, 
something like Cindy Crawford with the Diet Coke or thinking about was it was it was it Cindy Crawford again or was it Carmen Electra with the Doritos mm. uh, inside the um, the dryer that were popping into her mouth? Where was a commercial with Jeremy Allen White? Yeah, like actually tapping into this current moment as opposed to like this like oldish version of monoculture with an oldish set of celebrities. No offense to them. And when you think about Super Bowl commercials of that era, they were sexy and maybe they were a little bit misogynistic because they were all just very sexy women. But now that we're in an era where people are lusting over a Jeremy Allen because of his Calvin Klein ad, then maybe you should have a commercial where he's sexy in one of them. Or where was Jacob Elordi or any of these people that I feel like culture has been lusting over for the past year. And this leads us to our new segment on Keep It, Where is Jacob Elordi? Where I just ask it every week, and I'm upset that he's not here. Like his mother in my kerchief waiting for him to come home. Is he the Carbon San Diego of our time? Uh, no, because he's eminently findable. He's just not here, which is what's concerning. But Well, I guess we are going to wrap up with the Super Bowl and the commercials that everyone was talking about. There is a little movie that could coming oh, right. out called Wicked. I My friends who love Wicked and saw the trailer and were super into it, I was not getting full of life from the trailer. The, first of all, the CGI level was fully Annie Leibovitz doing a Disney princess Vanity Fair show, <laughs> which is like my least favorite look in all of cinema. And then secondly... I, I have high hopes for Cynthia Erivo. We got a, a little blast of her vocals, which of course were lovely. Ariana, I'm, I don't know about the comic chops there. When she said, you're green, did we laugh? I laughed at the memes later. Okay, not the same thing. Not the same thing. Yeah, I love Wicked. And I think that a thing that would shock you also, or maybe we've talked about it on the show before. You know, John Lovett loves Wicked. Oh, that's interesting. This is how he decided to dip into homosexuality? Fine. <laughs> but Wicked has been a musical that I have long loved. I, I listened to maybe that cast recording more than I listened to most I other, love For um, Good, yes. Broadway cast recordings. I hate the... There, I mean, there are a couple snakes on that album. Sentimental Man uh, is a very horrible song. And I'm not looking forward to it in the movie. But I liked the trailer. I was very excited that the movie is finally coming out. It feels like it's been long gestating. And it was like, are we ever going to get this movie? Remember when we were supposed to be getting this movie years ago with like, Amanda Seyfried right, or something? Right. Mm -hmm. But my main problem with this is what you said. The, the CGI and the lighting in Wicked, it's just... Every musical looks the same now. Right. It, it, it just looks like those Disney live action movies, you know, which all have that particular gloss to them that all feel mm -hmm. it's it's like, I guess, extremely current. But to me, looks like a 90s CD-ROM game. Someone described it as actually looking like an SNL sketch about Wicked. Right. That's, I think, pretty accurate. That's what it looks like. The the lighting in it, the the bright colors. I know that that is very Wicked, but... I don't know. It's just it it do, it feels very flat. It feels like every movie looks exactly the same now, and I think it's just really starting to bum me out. It's that green screen stuff. You know what I mean? It can only look a certain way. You know, it's never going to look. I think way more fabulous than any other green screen movie. Even the Deadpool trailer looked very much like that, and many of the scenes that are in the trailer were actually shot 
on location. But mm. somehow the on location stuff even looks flat on screen too. It's just everything has this glossy sheen now. And it makes me upset because for years I worked as Madam Webb's assistant. And I, I hate to see her, <laughs> the, the, the bad press she's getting. She's a really good person. With that being said, I think that we can take a little break. And when we're back, it's time for Keep It. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis. Me? In a shocking turn of events, there is Oscars news yes. for you to discuss. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Lo and behold, <laughs> um, after, I guess, years of asking and, and of gay men clamoring online because casting people for fun is what we just want to do. I have long called casting the gay men's superpower. Um, casting is going to have an Academy Award. There's going to be a Best Casting uh, Oscar next year. And that, I think, is exciting. I also think it is, I don't want to say dubious, but just the rules of the casting need to be articulated to me. Because I just don't feel like Mm. on any given movie, casting is entirely responsible for who gets chosen in the movie. You know what I mean? Mm. Like some people work with producers, directors again and again, etc., so I'm I'm interested in how that will shake out ultimately. But my keep it is not to that. I'm excited about that. My keep it is to the fact that sound is still only one category. How do people think sound on a movie works? Like we just listen to the actors and then we go into a booth, hit some knobs on a boom box, and then it all turns out. It is such a complicated art form. It's something that's been condensed to one category, I think, just for the palatability of viewing audiences who don't know what go what goes into sound design. And I think we have really minimized an incredible art form by doing that. I'm I'm best sound is so generic. It doesn't mean anything to me when I see that category name. It's too it's too sprawling an idea. Um, like this year, I would say there should be a best sound design for that I would give to the zone of interest and then best sound mixing would I think be a more musical movie like Maestro. There's just, there's two different Mm. art forms at play there. And I just continue to be upset when I see that there isn't more recognition for what goes into sound. So this is basically a dated keep it since we've had these categories conveyed this way for a little while now, but just bothers me. It really bothers me. What category do we need to make sure that whoever put the cover of 50 cents PIMP into anatomy of a fall. What category do we need to make sure that they get an Oscar? Also, not only do they play that song in the movie, they play it 70 times. They're like, you will be walking out (laughs) thinking of the steel drum cover of PIMP. I remember watching anatomy of a fall. I watched it at home actually. And when I first heard PIMP playing, now, I'm in the midst of a, a 50 cents, if you will. Oh, okay. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of 50 Cent. I've been re-listening to uh, his first album a lot. Uh, I've been re-listening to the song AO Technology mm. a lot. Part of me thought that I had accidentally somehow turned on PIMP on my right. Amazon Echo or something. You left the tab open or something? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because it was got so very loud and aggressive. And then it wasn't until Sandra Hula acknowledged the song. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but then <laughs> the very intense courtroom scenes in the movie being interspliced with that song again, that is just stellar work. And people have come away from that movie talking about her amazing performance. Yes, but they've come away talking about 
that 50 Cent song, and they've also come away talking about that dog. Yeah. So, <laughs> who was just at the Oscars luncheon yesterday and was like yeah. the star of the whole show. <laughs> Mark Malkin had a great interview with the dog. <laughs> Asking if it's queer, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> Asking why he's taking parts away from gay dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Ira, what is your keep it? My keep it is a bit of a throwback keep it as well. Okay. Lewis. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Jon Stewart is back on television, but not in the problem with Jon Stewart, his canceled Apple TV series. He's back on The Daily Show. Well, as you know, I'm spicy with him anyway because he beat me for a Glad Award, and I just want to see the butt fucking he has done because I would just, I just don't <laughs> think you know like it's really competitive with my work over here. Mm, ask Tucker Carlson about it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oh God, what does that mean? <laughs> um i mean he's fucked him in his bow tie quite a bit oh that's true yeah i saw that episode of crossfire or whatever that show was yeah but anyway we have john stewart back at the daily show desk because they have somehow been unable to find someone to replace trevor noah since he left 15 years ago it seems like (laughs) at this point And he is only there on Monday nights, however, and he's talking about indecision 2024 because that's a throwback to, you know, how he used to discuss the race before when we had a presidential race. He had a bit where he talked about Biden and he talked about Trump and he referenced the fact that Biden is old. He's an old man. Uh, And he talked about how basically Democrats weren't doing a very good job of fighting the complaints that Biden is too old to be running for president again, while also pointing out that Trump is also a very old man and that Republicans are also being disingenuous about his age. Here's a problem I have with the response to this, where a lot of people on the internet started saying that he was both sides in the election and saying that any criticism of Biden is support for Trump, I guess. And I don't know why I'm shocked that we are in this era of political idiocy, but I know that things are dire when it comes to the election. You know, we did 2020, we had the whole shit with Trump, um, trying to steal an election after we had four awful years of him. But if you are going to tell me that I am unable to make a single joke about Biden, who is an old man, uh, or unable to make any sort of criticism about him just because the election is at stake, that feels a little bit very not something I want to be a part of. It's. I think what people are maybe reacting to is like, yeah, go ahead and make jokes about that. It. It. Well, again, Donald Trump is a little like Taylor Swift, where he has so outlasted these joke areas about him mm-hmm. that it feels very trite to even go back and like talk about how horrible he is, like to to make legitimate criticisms mm-hmm. about him because you're repeating yourself for the ninetieth time. Whereas Joe Biden going mm-hmm. for his, you know, uh, second. Uh, run of four years in his 80s that just feels a little bit more novel like we have more to say about that at the moment when obviously that's not as pressing a concern as this you know idiot coming back to to the dais right and listen uh, some of the jokes were a little trite and some of them felt like jokes that we had heard before but a lot of the response to it was people saying well 
we need to go out and vote for Biden. So you can't make fun of him. And I think that that when we get into that place of telling people that they can't sort of be mad at the Democratic establishment is what sort of annoys me. Because, first of all, black people are always criticized at the Democratic establishment and we go out to vote. Right. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be the liberals watching John Stewart on The Daily Show who will be deciding the election in November. Let's just put it that way. I'm actually sort of interested to look back at what kind of jokes John Stewart made about people like Obama or John Kerry or Democrats mm-hmm. of the 2000s because they're actually not shooting to mind. Like I don't I I I what I remember John Stewart I mainly remember him talking about the rise of wacky politicians, wacky conservative politicians who weren't even running for president. Like I think of him Mm -hmm. criticizing Fox News and things like that. So um, I would be curious to look back at that stuff. I also think that people have become a bit more comfortable with criticizing like Obama and Biden post him leaving The Daily Show. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think that there was a lot of immediate criticism of Obama specifically, especially for millennials that we get now. There's a lot of people who are more willing to make fun of Obama or make fun of Biden now. And I get it. I think that politically, a lot of people feel disappointed with the past few years. And they want to express their anger in a way that is more fruitful than a couple jokes at The Daily Show mm-hmm. desk. Right. No, it, it, it's it's weird that we apparently need Jon Stewart to come back. Like that, A lot of people are like, thank God he's finally here. Like, why are we... Like, we are awash in not just commentary, but really good commentary. It's it's strange to think we need Jon Stewart as like a fulcrum for everybody else to pay attention and engage properly again. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit mystified by it. Yeah, I mean, I just personally feel that the, the jokes were very softball jokes. And I feel like if you think that jokes about this is something that's going to decide the election, then I think that we're living in some other alternate alternate universe here at any rate go and vote (laughs) don't boo vote (laughs) don't tweet don't watch the daily show vote that's our show this week we're finally at the end of our long string of things like award shows and super bowl halftime performances so we'll have a little bit of ordinariness to come back to Uh, i hope we can come down from this high well, how long do we have till the we've got a month still till the Oscars, the, which is wild to me. It's very crazy. Yeah. We we still haven't really recovered from the pandemic, which pushed the Oscars back a few weeks, like it used to be mainly mm-hmm. in February. But um, yeah, the Oscars promo just uh, dropped where Jimmy and uh, Weird Barbie, Kate McKinnon. Um, I it, thought it was very. Isn't funny. it very cute? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you afterwards which <laughs> jokes I wrote, and tell me which ones Joe Coy wrote. <laughs> the secret head writer of the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would gag if Joe Coy walked out at the beginning of the Oscars and he was like, I'm just kidding, y'all. Here's Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> In the way that Stacey Dash popped out that one year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> that really was an unbelievably shocking moment. Okay, anyway. Yes, we'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. 
This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroot, David Tolles, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.